Hi, this is Cardi. Hi, this is Ali. And welcome back to another episode of Creative Corporates, a podcast on career conversations for those starting out, switching out, and anything in between. So this week, we're really going to deep dive into the world of music to understand the nuances of the industry, how to cultivate a career, and the importance of developing your signature style. The reason for this conversation is largely um, off the back of a fantastic weekend we had last weekend. It was pouring rain outside, but inside, Cardi and I were working on her latest music video. I unfortunately was not the performer. Cardi was, and she did a fantastic job. Um, as behind the scenes, though, as someone who's not in this world, it was just so phenomenal, Cardi, to like see how all of these individuals come together to actually create something where it's you know, they're, own, they're all looking for different things in that, but they come together to create something that's so much larger than themselves. And so for someone who, you know, largely sits behind a desk nine to five, this was so different from the world that I had come from. And so I really wanted to see, you know, what is that actually like on a day-to-day basis? What are the journeys that people have in this in this world? But I didn't feel like just the conversation between the two of us was enough. So Cardi has kindly invited Emma Greenhill to the podcast as well to help us with this conversation. So firstly, before we introduce you, welcome to the podcast, Emma. We're so excited to have you. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We are thrilled. And I think, you know, Cardi will do a great job of introducing you because, you know, I I definitely wouldn't even know half of these accolades, but I am beyond impressed. Yeah. Look, Emma was the first person that popped into my mind because she's a composer, an arranger, producer, performer, and a teacher. And I think her credentials speak more than anything, given that we know each other from school. And, you know, the first thing coming out of school was that, you know, she was not only nominated as an encore nominee, but she was actually the encore performer out of everyone at the con uh, for the HSC, which was outstanding. And to have her composition performed at the Sydney Opera House um, as a year 12 student. And then following on from that, from my understanding, she, you know, Emma also won the Watermark Composition Prize, which involved her piece being performed by finalists in the Kendall National Violin Competition, which is quite a highly esteemed competition within the classical space. And then that topped off with, you know, her winning the Verge Awards for Best Composition Prize in, I think, 2014. And then further on, she most recently actually won the APRA AMCOS made by Composition Prize. And so, you know, a lot of the work that she's been doing in regards to arrangements has been for commercial work such as The Voice Australia Seven Networks, most recent ABBA Live um, performances and the Adele special and works closely with the Australian Idol winner Damien Leith too. And one of the things that I was also really impressed by was that she's even been commissioned to write compositions for Trinity Grammar School and the Symphony for Life Foundation. And actually one of her newest pieces is being featured in the Amy B Violin series um, 10, which is being released next month, which I cannot wait to see and listen to. So they're just a small amount of the things that I'm so inspired by and why I could not wait to have Emma on the podcast so that we could learn a little bit more from her. Sure, that was a nice introduction. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm like, I'm trying to say like the business card is quite long. Like you might need a little scroll for that one. Um, but I, but I love it. And and Emma, I think. You know, just reflecting on that, you know, for some of the basics, you know, I hear 
lots of different terms. So what's the difference between a composer, but uh, between that and an arranger and even a producer? So when I'm arranging, I will be like given a song that already has all the form there, all the lyrics and melody is there, and they maybe just want me to add strings to the track. So I'm just sort of arranging something around what already exists. Mm -hmm. Or another form of arranging would be if somebody wants something for like a big band or for orchestra and they don't like they have the song but they want it to be rearranged in a different format um so then I'm responsible for for doing that and then with composing it's literally you're you're just coming up with everything yourself trying to make some new cool music I suppose the best you can and producing is you're sitting behind the desk in the studio I mean also producing could be producing like live music I don't do that Mm -hmm. but I do some pre-recorded producing so I will uh, record myself, that's a that's an element of producing, or record other people as well, other musicians, to send that off to be mixed and mastered into something, or producing my own music as well. So, and then what's what else do I do? And then I perform, obviously, which I feel like is kind of a given. You play in front of people. <laughs> that's awesome. So if we took that into, like took an analogy to apply that in a concert, right? So if we go into a concert, What I've understood is, say we're listening to a piece of work, like we've got, we're there to see the Star Wars um, theme of the SSO, you know, performing that work. And they've gone, okay, that's an existing Star Wars theme, very well known, but there's only, I'm just making this up, but it was only made for the brass section, but they've got a full orchestra there. And so the strings are currently being unused. They've gone, we want to contact Emma to arrange the work so that it's for the full orchestra. Is that kind of on the right track? Uh, yes. Yeah, definitely. So if that music isn't, hasn't already been provided, then actually recently there was like a, um, like a carols type thing. Yeah. And they needed like a few songs that I think from some Australian artists too, um, but they, they needed it to be rearranged like for the format of the concert. Oh, I think they had like a small orchestra, string orchestra. So I just did string quartet and then they had a small brass section as well. I essentially just notated what was already existing, but there was an element of arranging for that too because I did have to sort of make it work for that format. But I think why that's really interesting is, and I only know this because I think it's so complex, <laughs> when as an instrumental performer, there's different ways that you read music. So some people have transposing instruments so even if you put for example a score which is the sheet music in front of a particular performer that doesn't mean that it's actually going to sound good all together because of the way that music is written it really is quite complex and so I think arranging is a whole whole skill set whole kettle of fish yeah yeah Yeah. that in of itself would be very challenging just to notate the music so that everyone in an orchestra or string quartet could read the music and for it to sound actually like the piece well I think that's that's why I enjoy it as well because you're you have to be challenged to understand instruments that you might not necessarily play as well so if I'm writing something for you know, at least if I'm writing for piano or for violin or even for cello, like it still feels very like close to home mm. with what I already play. But if I'm writing for like trumpet, I yeah, I just kind of have to just imagine what's it like to play a trumpet, like, and then go off, you know, 
my understanding of the instrument, which is obviously what I've studied as well. Yeah, thinking about like breaths, which is obviously nothing you have to think about when you're playing the violin and also like looking up the ranges and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that because it sounds like there's so much empathy that's involved. You've really got to put yourself in the shoes of all the different people that make up the orchestra to understand like not only you know the nature of the music that they play but the way that they play it as you said breathing yeah um and so you know try not to write some boring parts too (laughs) exactly like everyone you've got an important part to play yeah I always try to have something nice for everybody (laughs) yeah that's thoughtful I remember there's a few pieces when I was playing the saxophone oh like in year let's say primary nothing to write home about and um, there were some pieces where I was like, okay, like I'm just going to chill out here, but someone else is having a grand old time. So it, it's great that you're actually giving that empathy for everyone so that they feel like they're part of something. So I guess in that regard, what really motivated you to pursue a career in this? Is, is this something that you always wanted to do? And is there an idol in this space that, you know, you really looked up to that helped inspire you to, to move into it? Um, I think – In terms of music, I definitely always knew and I was really obsessed with the composer Thomas Newman. I mean, I still am very obsessed with him, but he really like, yeah, just caught my fancy when I was, I think I was about maybe eight or nine and just listening to his music, something about it just was so mystical and magical and I was like, I really want to write music like that. Like, I don't know how, but I just need to be able to do that. And then I guess that has taken me on the journey of, writing music and I was already playing violin at that point I guess like doing all this other stuff is just an element of just being in the industry like I I didn't think that I would be arranging music I don't think I ever knew what that was when I was younger but it's all just a part of the music industry and I guess I just want to be able to do everything and be involved in in all aspects of it of the creative stuff. Yeah because I remember when we were in high school I was always so impressed that you had a Mac and knew actually how to use GarageBand, <laughs> um, which I know sounds simple, but for someone like myself exploring and experimenting, I should say in the past year or so with it, I just think it's, you know, it's far out of my reach from what I've ever been exposed to. And like, I remember you, you know, playing around with composing um, and notating music or recording yourself at such I guess a young age, I think. When did you start? Um, I think I started recording when I was about eight or nine, actually. Wow. About the same time. I, I yeah, got obsessed with like learning about what it was to sort of create film music and stuff. And I think somebody told my mum that I would be able to do it at home if I had garage band and I could like layer up sounds and stuff because I was just doing it on my keyboard where you could like record up to five parts I think and I was like yeah I'm gonna change to the violin sound and it was all like really really basic but I like really used that system a lot so that I could like layer up all the sounds that I was hearing so then I think someone who was musical must have heard me doing that and then like told mom to get me a computer and then from there yeah I just just had the best time it was like a little playground just spend hours and hours writing really bad music. <laughs> well, I think either what they say, practice makes perfect, right? Um, and definitely in that regard, I think something that even we, we've come to realize in starting this podcast is it's not, as you said, it's not just being able to be technically brilliant at playing. It's actually um, the ability to understand all the surrounding skill sets 
that you need to do. And, we, and we've touched on the element of, you know, at that level of garage band or even engaging with technology. But are there other things that people, you know, a common misconception such as what we've just said is most people think it's just being technically brilliant. Are there any additional skills that you really need to, to convert from being good at the actual task to being able to create that into paid work or, or convertible work? Well, I think potentially the business side of it um, and just, just being easy to work with mm-hmm. really, really helps if, if that's what you mean. Like um, I, That's definitely an element, but even I think of like, okay, so I'll take the podcast as an example. So do I still just need to be a good talker and then I'll have a podcast? Um, what I've learned is no. Um, what you additionally need is you need to be able to understand how to record you know what are the t- what are the the sound quality elements that you need you know being able to stitch stitch episodes together all of these skills that nobody would have told me comes with just being able to talk well is, is that sort of similar in your, in these areas as well yeah i mean i think just also having a positive and um persistent outlook on whatever it is that you're doing because there are even now and especially when i was younger there were a lot of times where i felt frustrated because I couldn't get something the way that I wanted it or, you know, something wasn't working because like technology, there's always going to be stuff that gets in the way. Um, but just, yeah, just just trying to be persistent and, and keep going. And th- it's amazing that we have all the online resources that we could possibly need. Like if you ever have a problem, if you keep reading through the forums, eventually you'll find a solution to your problem. So that was definitely a big thing because that's not naturally who I am. I'm like creatively, I just want to get everything out. So if like yeah. technology is getting in the way, I'm like, ah, it's frustrating. I just want to stop now. But um, having to keep going, definitely. But and then I guess, yeah, more probably like the file sharing stuff is something that I didn't think about too much, especially in university. But since having to do lots of remote recording, um, when I'm sharing the recordings that I've done with somebody else, like understanding um, how to send that to them completely raw, like with no effects on it, or you know, asking them what, how do they want me to send that? There's so many factors, um, and understanding all of that, and being able to offer and tell the person what you're going to do before you do it is great because a lot of the time you might do something a certain way, and they're like, "Oh, actually, I didn't want it like that." So being able to communicate is really important. Yeah, so that's so interesting because it's really different for live performance really you've just got to rock up and start playing that's the focus Mm -hmm. and I feel like the music industry that's actually pretty much only maybe a quarter or half of the industry but the other half is actually a world that I wasn't even aware of where it's all about pre-recorded music and it's so the approach you take to that is so different Mm -hmm. from just the technical performance even when you're performing the technique and recording it, the way that you do that is so interesting. It's not about doing, for example, a full take of the piece. You might do just snippets of it and then it's all about putting it together at the end, which is so different from a live performance where it's like, no, you do the full take. Like you're not going to stop a performance, yeah. you know, halfway through a song. It was interesting. I um, had one of my students around actually the other day. She's a really, um, really amazing singer and songwriter. And I was just showing her like we were going to record one of her songs together. Finally, with lockdown ending, she could come up and we could do it. Um, and so 
just showing her like how to record, like she was so interested in it. And one thing that she told me at the, as we were recording it, so I was like, okay, this section, let's just go and do it. Like, um, like it was, you know, maybe a 10 second section of the verse. It's like, okay, we'll just keep doing it maybe like seven times and then we'll sit down and then we'll go through and pick the best bits. And then she was like, oh, okay, cool. And so she just kept singing it and then she'd make a mistake and be like, oh, sorry. And I'm like, don't worry, just keep going. We're going to do it seven times. Just keep going. And then afterwards we'd go through and then pick like, okay, I, she's like, I think I really like the way I sang this word, but then I preferred this part of the, the other bit. And then I was like, yeah, no worries. We can do that. She's like, really, you can do that? She's like, Emma, I think I'm understanding the difference between a studio recording and a live recording. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's very different. It's like, that's why I sound okay singing in the studio, but not good live. <laughs> this is so funny because I honestly, when we were doing this music video recording, it's, this was exactly the conversation we were having. <laughs> you, you don't realize that you can stitch and cut in a way that like, the, at the end product, it looks like one day, mm. but it's all these pieces in between. And so you, but you can actually kind of get the bits and bobs, but I think it's just requiring a different mindset, right? Because you've obviously been trained to think of the whole thing end to end. And probably the way that you view that, you think that it's an end to end take, but it's definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm also laughing because I think we had to have a bit of those conversations last week as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, in saying that though, I think that there is, um, there, there is a time and place to have a single take start to finish. And there's been a couple of things I've had to do like that recently where I recorded like a solo violin thing for a performance. And that was really hard for me because I'm so used to being in the studio and being able to chop stuff up and be like, no, I prefer this note or oh, I was a bit out of tune there, whatever. It's like, no, I had to do like a four minute performance start to finish. Um, and it's all synced with the visual and I'm not, I don't know, understand how to do visuals. I'm not going to be able to like sync different visuals together. So, um, yeah, it was important to just, just let it be and like leave those imperfections. And same thing mm. with like my partner recently. So we were working on an album together and he kept, he was recording something um, with him and his guitar. And in the end, we decided that it would just actually feel better as a performance if he just recorded it, him and his guitar, all the way through and we just picked the best take start to finish, like rather than chopping up just because of the style of the of the music. So I think, yeah, yes, it's awesome that you can do that, but also sometimes it's good to like leave a bit of imperfection in and leave it raw. Embrace it, yeah, I love that. And so... But that, I think that's, that's just a microcosm of what of some of the differences. But if I walk through, I'm really keen to hear from each of you, like what's a day in the life of someone who's in the industry? So, you know, between the two of you, um, Emma, if you would like to go first, you know, what does that look like in terms of your day, how you structure it with all of these different different parts of work that you do? I mean, it's going to sound very boring probably, um, but I usually, I wake up, I get coffee. <laughs> well, yes, definitely. definitely coffee, um, yeah. If I haven't done it the night before, I usually do do it the night before where I just write out like the things that I have to get done the next day. Um, I just, the last year I've had to do that because otherwise it's actually really easy for me. If I've got so many things to do in the day, I just forget like, Oh, I'm supposed to do that thing for that person or make that phone call or whatever it is. Um, and then and is that because you're on like different timelines? Yes. Yeah. For each of the pieces. So a lot right, of the time, okay. like I'll have five things or six things going on at once. So it's actually really easy to like forget about one project or, 
even if it's like in your calendar or, um, yeah. So definitely having a to-do list is really useful. And sometimes if I feel a bit like overwhelmed with the to-do list, I also just put in like mundane things like taking my dog for a walk. I put in on the to-do list. So then it's like, okay, that's like a nice thing for me to do. If I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed with how much work there is, then it's like, I'll do that. And then I feel mentally better by just having one green tick next to that thing that I've done or like Like a sense of achievement that I've actually completed. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, honestly, it changes so much. Like sometimes I feel really motivated in the morning and sometimes it's like late at night as well, unfortunately, because I have to get up early a lot of the time, but sometimes late at night I'll find a surge of inspiration. I think because everything's quiet, there's no distractions. Um, Yeah. So I guess it's just me working my way through my to-do list and taking the dog for a walk and then that's pretty much it. <laughs> and then, so I guess, I guess what I hear though is like, and again, this is probably for you, it feels so natural, but I think about it in terms of like, if you've got those short and sharp pieces that you've kind of, you have to do, so they might be shorter timelines. Is that for like a composing piece or is it the longer piece that's a composing piece? How, how do you kind of fit in the different parts um, into that schedule? So usually if I'm arranging something, that's something that will be like quite quick and snappy unless it's a big arranging project like um maybe a good example is recently yeah for this carols thing there was like quite a few pieces that I had to arrange I also like had to notate all the piano that was literally exactly the same that was in the track so that was actually quite time consuming for me um and the best thing for me to do was just like I had a whole month to do it so it was like just make sure that I'm just checking off at least one a week in between doing everything else. And then there's usually one creative thing that I'm working on at the time. So it's like it, just just spending an hour every day on that creative project, it's amazing how much you actually get done in two weeks if you're just spending an hour every day. That's so interesting. So that doesn't, that doesn't seem too dissimilar, I guess, from people who are working on different things. But I guess is that – like I would think that's quite important even when I reflect on like the, the work that we do is – because you almost need a little bit of structure to allow for that creativity to flow, um, almost giving yourself that space to be able to do it because if you're working on something that's, you know, so uniquely yours in terms of your piece, giving it that so you're, you're able to accomplish that. Otherwise, do you feel like it will never really come or, you, or you'll kind of avoid it working on those things? Definitely. Yeah. Creatively, like when it comes to arranging, it's like, it's really easy for me because I'm like, yeah, if I spend a couple of hours in the studio, I'll just smash it out. I'll just get it done. Um, but when it comes to like doing a really big composition, like recently I had to do um, a seven-minute piece. Actually, it was six minutes but it ended up being seven um, for the Anam set. And um, I really, really wanted like because there are so many amazing composers that I really look up to that were also doing the same thing. And there were definitely moments of fear where I was like, what if I like can't do it? What if I'm not going to be able to get it done? Um, but just persisting and every day, like, um, yeah, every day just doing a little bit more and not seeing it as a failure if you if you write for like three hours that day and then delete everything. Like sometimes that's a really important part of the creative process. And the best thing to do is to just get into a rhythm of sitting down, and do the same thing every day because you can actually train the creativity. I think people think that 
the creativity is something that you have to wait for the inspiration. But no, if you keep sitting down and doing it every day, and this was in Philip Glass's biography, actually, and that's what inspired me about it. He said that he would sit down with a timer on the piano and would sit there and usually he would just stare at the piano for like three hours every day until the timer was up and be like, oh, thank God. And then eventually he started playing the piano because he was bored in the three hours that he had the timer set. And then by the end of, you know, a year of doing that, he was writing, actually composing during that time. I know that's like super extreme, but it is true. If you keep doing it, your your brain will learn that that's the time to get creative. So I've got a really interesting point here. I recently caught up with a friend that planted a fantastic concept in my mind. And he was talking about this idea of a Picasso in comparison to a Cezanne. So the painters, that that is. And so apparently it has been well documented that Picasso's approach to creating a piece of art is that he, before he starts he, a piece of work, he already knows, he knows exactly what it's going to look like. So he doesn't know necessarily the specific brush strokes, but he knows that, you know, the female is going to look like this. These are going to be the shapes. This is going to be the color. And he achieves that straight away. But that's in contrast with, for example, a Cezanne approach to his paintings where doesn't really know what it's going to look like but he's going to do multiple iterations and, you know, months later he'll put it in the, you know, back on the back seat, try something else, we'll come back to it and he'll just change this concept and over time it evolves. And, you know, the way that I was thinking about it is like I'm like, oh, I'm the latter, you know, I'm the Cezanne. <laughs> and I actually didn't realise that the Picasso approach, I, I don't, I haven't thought, of many creatives that I know of that fall into that category. But I'd be really interested to know if that is something, though, that is something that comes from whether you're born that way or if it's something that comes out of through discipline, just through training, that you are able to visualise exactly what it is that you're going to produce creatively and you know it's going to be a success as well. So it's two different aspects. But, yeah, it's just something that I thought of when you were talking about that concept of training. That's very yeah. interesting because um, I think I think it definitely would come from from training, surely. Um, for me, I think maybe a little bit of both. Like sometimes I'll, I feel like I have a really clear idea of what the piece will be before I do anything. And then the minute I start writing, I'm like I get a bit lost um, and then I usually find my way again. And by the end, it's completely different really to what I expected. But I like to think that like, it's not even like I'm really writing the music. It's like the music, I'm just kind of giving a voice to the music that already exists. I know that sounds super weird and like a bit spiritual. No, um, it, I, it's like you're kind of giving it life. Yeah. Cause I feel like when I'm really in the zone, it's not like I'm even composing. I'm just like, I'm listening and I'm I'm playing what I'm doing and I'm listening and I'm like, oh, that's what it needs to do next. It's like the music is telling me what it needs to do next. So there's no, there is no control for me. Like, And that's why a lot of the time I find it hard if someone says, like recently, this needs to be six minutes but it can't go over eight minutes. I'm like, oh, my God, like what if the music needs to go for longer? Like I, I don't Give know. Give the music the space it needs. <laughs> yeah, so it was like kind of me like trying to trying to mould it a little bit but still give it give it its own life. Um, and it still went a little bit over time, but that was fine in the end. I don't think that mattered. 
Um, actually, I think it was seven and a half minutes. So I definitely pushed it just just to the end. But again, didn't feel like that was in my control. It just the music had to keep going. Yeah, it's a bit of negotiation. I think there's a lot of um, those kinds of ideas in in Big Magic as well. One of the books from Elizabeth Gilbert really talking about she uses the thing about ideas are like little creatures that form that kind of float around and then they see you as a home so they might come in but if you're not good to them they're going to leave you and go to that's someone what else. it feels like yes yeah it is I mean and there was a great a great quote that my brother actually shared with me um that I think is really applicable to both of you in terms of developing your own signature style so the quote is Steven Spielberg said sure the whip the hat and the jacket are all parts of the Indiana Jones iconography. But what really gives Indy his heart and spirit is John Williams' music. Indeed, on the set of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, there was not one day where you didn't hear someone humming the Raiders' March. So in terms of how both of you are developing your signature style, and I imagine it's very similar to someone's personal brand, it it evolves and develops over time. But thinking about that, how have you started that journey in terms of building out your signature so that people know that that's distinctly your creative work? I mean, I don't know if I have been like trying to work on having a signature style, but I think that inevitably it sort of happened a little bit based on it's like this amalgamation of like a little bit of jazz and like a little bit of uh, film and then a little bit of weird contemporary classical. I think I think probably just expanding your musical repertoire, not just in what you play and perform and write, but in what you listen to, just means that it's it's much easier then for you to to define a style that is you because you're taking stuff from from here and from here and from here and from here rather than just sort of like listening to one thing and being like, oh, I love that. I want to write something like that. Yeah. So when I think of your music, I instantly link it to the Australian landscape. And I think Australian contemporary classical, it is phenomenal. It is honestly so outstanding. I just, yeah, it, I just cannot wait to um, to hear more of it. But I, for me, actually, your work is really distinctive. Oh, I, that's great. Yeah, We're here I every think. week, you know, Hive Queens. You can hire us on a Monday morning, hyping you up. Yeah. That's part of our job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I might need it. <laughs> but honestly, no, like your work is very much, I just hear, it sort of like reminds me a bit of like The Lark Ascending, which is, you know, a Vaughan Williams piece. Vaughan Williams, one of my favourite composers. There we go. Um, but, you know, even Elena Katz-Chernin, it's just. Also it's, one of my favourites. <laughs> there we go. These are all compliments. Didn't even know. <laughs> um, but these, the, it really reminds, but it's even still your work is very distinctive. That's how I would describe it. I hear your work and it's uplifting. It really evokes an emotion. I, well, you, mm, I, we probably haven't, all the stuff I've written recently is quite depressing. <laughs> so I um, I apologise if you're not feeling as uplifted after the recent stuff. But but no, I suppose I, I am definitely a very emotional person and I want to not in like a, oh, I go and cry all the time and I just mean like that I, I just feel everything a lot and I always want my music to convey some kind of emotion. So that's great that you feel that because that's definitely what I'm trying to um, to get across, I suppose. 
Yeah, because that's what's interesting. Like when you have, for example, a movie, right, a lot of the time you don't feel the emotion if it, the film was on mute. A, a lot of that is through music. And, I mean, there's no fixed way, for example, of expressing through sound, I don't think, like, you know, sadness, happiness, joy. You know, it's always with hints of something else. and. Yeah, and so, like, I don't know how that's achieved, but, like, I think it's really, really interesting to go and show why composing is so moving. I think um, just a really good example of what you're talking about is, have you guys seen American Beauty? Not recently, but I know it. I know it. I know the vibe. There's this mm-hmm. scene where um, Jane, the the girl protagonist, the younger girl, she, um, not the blonde one, she is, like, she has this kind of like weird um, infatuation with the with the neighbor next door, but they have this like kind of unspoken um, understanding that they're both a bit strange and they and they both just kind of get each other a little bit. So there's like this sort of like innocence in their relationship, and then she's in the window and she sees him, and it sounds weird because he films everything because he's like obsessed with film and he thinks it's really beautiful and. Um, Anyway, so she, he's filming her and it sounds really weird um, and then she actually strips in front of him like in the window and if you – there's no dialogue in this and if you mute it, it's like – like imagine if there was like some sexy music going on it would be like going to be a bit comical. It's like, oh, he's a bit of a perv. Why is he filming her? But then there's like this beautiful like music that just evokes – it's mysterious because it, and then – but it also is so – like it – um, conveys this innocence that makes it feel not dirty because it's not supposed to feel dirty. It's supposed to be like this actually quite intricate, um, intimate, sorry, moment where she's like, you know, she's exposing herself. Anyway, I, I think that the music, it really encapsulates that emotion, which otherwise would just be completely lost in that scene. Um yeah, so I don't know, just maybe a, a good example of that. That is, and I think that's the power of it, and, you know, vice versa. Like I think an, exa- an a, a example of that is so much of a horror movie is is the music, you know. When I'm Definitely. scared and I'm watching it or I'm forced to watch it because I didn't get to choose movie night, <laughs> like I, I'm putting it on mute because I'm like, oh, if we just mute this part that I guess I can get through it because it's the sound. It's, Definitely. it's all, of the, all of that intentional that's added like beyond what the, the people are actually playing. Um, I guess why that's so important is I think if you asked me to, to be able to, to make a sound for different emotions, it would be very binary. And so as you mentioned, it's that hints that says so much more around the complexity of human emotion to be able to convey that into music. And is it something like you, is it practiced or is it sort of like, you know, over time you've learned to, that it's practiced, develop that? Um, I actually think it sounds like, yes, definitely um, it's something that just maybe like comes to you in the feeling when, you, when you're when you playing or composing. But I actually think, and maybe this is a bit technical to talk about, um, but there is like modes that you can use um, that do, I think, like convey um, more complexity in emotion as opposed to just playing like, you know, something in C major, like doing something with a Lydian inflection, which anybody who's a musician might know what I'm talking about, but it just um, basically it's kind of like combining major and minor together and that creates, 
yeah, creates something more complex or like, yeah, but maybe not um, Lydian, but Dorian literally combines a major scale and a minor scale together. So it's like sad, but there's like this uplifting element to it. And sometimes maybe like a beautiful scene where there's a farewell or something in a movie, like hands down is probably in Dorian because it's conveying this like two emotions at once, like happy this person's going off to like this amazing thing, but we're sad because we're saying goodbye and yeah. So technically I I do think that it can actually be theoretically explained as well. I honestly think that if it was like you were at my year three band night and they were explaining, hey, kids, you can actually convey human emotion better if you practice your instrument as opposed to practice this instrument because we told you to, I still would be playing music to this day. So I think it's really important when you understand the why and the value and the nuance that something and a career in this is actually bringing to be able to connect you more closely to the human experience, that's a way better selling point than you're going to lug around this giant saxophone when you're like as, as high as it around primary school. You know what I mean? Well, actually, that's a good point because at school, um, a lot of the stuff, yeah, I write for the kids for them to play as a group and we all have a good hoot over like, what are we going to write about next? Like, cause they all feel like they're part of it. Cause they get to like contribute. Like, I think that you should write about going into a woods and it's really scary, but then there's also some cool fairies and like, <laughs> it's cool because then they feel like they're part of the story. And then a lot of the time, like, instead of me talking about like, the note is wrong there. It's like, um, you know, maybe like when you're playing this, like really think about the little fairies jumping around and stuff. And that like, it makes more sense to them. And like, to me, I actually don't really care so much like about getting all the notes perfect. It's like, I want them to enjoy it. And yeah, telling a story, that's the main thing always. That's so interesting because I hear from that. Yeah. It's not about what's right and wrong. It's about how you feel when you've got the structure of the piece and then but playing notes that sound right in the context of how the big picture feels, which is actually really similar probably to my extent, which is not composing, but what I enjoy doing, with, which is actually playing a harmonising to electronic music. And so I love, I'm the biggest fan of Above and Beyond um, along with a couple, you know, a few others, a number of others. Sorry, what is above and beyond? <laughs> oh my Cries god! Okay, an eighteen-year-old so stereosonic. Um. <laughs> okay. um, but basically, it's not my area. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So they're an electronic band. I guess you could call that DJ. I would say. Gosh, I yeah, don't know. A the band. Te- technical yeah. word. Yeah. yeah, electronic yeah. band. Um, but their music. I don't. I think you'd actually quite like the Emma. I could be wrong, but they give off the same or it gives me the same sort of evokes a similar emotion to how I respond to your music at least um but it's with electronic sounds um but it's very moving I guess um and so in between there's not usually much there's some lyrics um so there's a singer involved um but in between that like I'll just play harmonized to it which is not something might add that I could do at high school it's only something I've recently been able to incorporate probably due to lockdown um having to be a little creative um but it's what got me through lockdown and I love it and I just yeah like I'll do I'll just make up my own sort of bits and pieces to it Carly you know that that is composing so 
you you saying like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a composer, I can't do that. It's like I think that that's what is the problem in the classical music world is that everyone is told like, oh, improvising and composing is so different and like that's you're just learning to play the notes on the page but I think that it should be taught to everybody really young to like have fun and express themselves and like you know even just adding a little chill when it feels nice or like that that is composing so and improvising so you can call yourself you caught me like improviser <laughs> there you I go I think this is so funny because Cardi and I literally had like the full shakedown when we were speaking to someone in a previous episode around like you should call yourself an artist it was Irene we we're like you should like if you paint and it, it is out there then you are an artist so I feel like it's come very full circle thank you Emma for reinforcing <laughs> the lessons between podcast episodes yes and, and I think you know keen to hear both of yours and I think many of us you know could relate on different things I think all of us who have grown up going to music festivals, Cardi, and kind of could no longer see ourselves going to one, but reminiscing on those times, your piece is really hitting that mark. Um, So keep going on that front. Um, But I really want to talk about now, you know, you've both developed that signature style. You're both creating your works. Um, But there's this blurred line that I notice a lot of the time between creating work that samples other people's work um, creating something and then someone else using that without your permission, how prevalent, and I guess the question you know, I'm trying to open the floor up with is understanding that as a creative, part of what you also need to understand is, is that commercial side that so often we think it's distinct and different, you know, but these worlds collide all the time. Um, and I know there was a recent example in the news around the importance of that and, and understanding. And we were having a bit of a conversation before, but really keen, you know, as someone who to me, maybe it's quite practiced and preached in business, but maybe not so much in music. Um, yeah. So I think that this is something that I've really had to understand more as I've worked more in the industry. And it's something that I still am trying to figure out because it's not it wasn't like really, there wasn't a huge emphasis on it when I was at university. Um, there was like one subject that I did, but that was it out of the whole four years. Um, and it was so much to take in in that small amount of time. I think there was one class like on that and that was it. So, but I think uh, what people don't realize is that if you're adding something to somebody else's track or um, like there's no music that's been provided, like sheet music, and you're essentially coming up with the lines, then you should really own that material. Um, they shouldn't own it. So it's a really good way of, if you have that viewpoint of being able to negotiate with people on fees, for instance, if there's a band and they might not have a huge budget, but you really want to work with them um, and you're adding your own your own made up stuff to that like you're a session musician you're coming in and doing your own thing then you can say I want to negotiate um you know some writing credit into this track because I'm writing something into it and then you know we can negotiate a, a lower fee so it's actually it can be a really positive thing I think when you realize that because then it also can enable you to maybe work with some people that that maybe financially you wouldn't feel super enabled to work with normally. And it's important to protect your work because even if you think like, oh, this, I'm sure this track won't 
become anything, it's important to protect it because you just don't know. Like it might, and it might end up in a TV show or it might end up playing heaps on the radio or something. And it's like, you've always got to think if you're just adding something to it, would you be happy with the fee that you were paid for that? So if I am not getting any writing credit, I charge premium for that. Um, and I, I see that as that was a good deal. I, you know, I got paid really well for that day and I need to be accepting of the fact that if anything happens with this track, I don't own it. It's not mine anymore. I've given away that. So, um, as opposed to, yeah, the other route where, you know, if anything happens, then, you know, oh, cool. Like that'll be great for me, (laughs) but otherwise it doesn't matter. Yeah. Really interesting because I remember my first introduction into this, which, I thought was mind blowing. Um, I did. I was a summer clerk at um, APRA AMCOS, which is Australia's largest copyright collective in Australia. It, it is the only one <laughs> in Australia. And basically, what they do is they work on behalf of creators and artists, so composers, and ensure that basically they collect royalties for everyone and then distribute them. And so I didn't even know that even like we got exposed to, you know, PPCA, screen rights, um, Sony, ATV, et cetera, and basically how they're pretty much, they run the show behind the scenes on how royalties and basically controlling the way other people's music is used. So I can't even remember all the terms, but off the top of my head, you know, this was my dad after my law degree where I'd already been involved in, you know, taking a copyright subject, didn't learn about these aspects of, for example, broadcasting rights, sync rights, master rights. I'm sure you know all the other ones, communication rights, where I was just hearing lots of jargon and going, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm honestly interested, but don't know what they mean. And basically, you know, there's it allows people to use, from my understanding, use your work or music in a particular way. So I'm guessing it's it's in in the way of if you're creating music for a particular um, for a particular show, you go okay. Well, I'm happy for you to use it in this particular context, but you're not allowed to use it in you know a commercial or something else unless you've got maybe a new agreement or you've provided a license for that. And so, Eve, is that right? Yeah, so that's called a non-exclusive sync deal, which um, I've tried to memorise (laughs) whenever I'm negotiating with people when they're using my music for a film or something screen-related. I think that's my whole point is, like, I wasn't even aware how apparently the norm that is, like, even when you're going into, for example, a restaurant, I thought that you would just, when you're listening to background music, I just think, oh, that sounds really nice. It adds to the ambience. Actually, you have to pay for a license to play radio music in a restaurant. And it's a license, sometimes it's per head. And that's why it costs money to play music. But we touched on something really important, which I think very conveniently helps me in my next section of this podcast. Hmm, Definitely not thought out, which is this idea of, Um, the great resignation. So one of the things we talk about on each of the episodes is really, you know, the crux of this is the great resignation is about quitting your job, but we actually think it's so much more. So it's the idea of resigning from a mindset, a relationship or a skill set that's no longer serving you. Um, It might be something you've long held on, something that's, you know, you've you've been trained to think a certain way. And as Kylie touched on before, the idea that the only – 
like key career path is a solo violinist. But in terms of for each of you, what's maybe another assumption that you wish you resigned from earlier that would have helped that you'd like to pay it forward for someone who's listening now? Cardi, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think one main assumption is that you have to wait until you graduate before you can start your career. And so I always thought that, you know, you've got to wait until you've got all your certifications and, you know, like formal qualifications, I should say, until you're actually considered a professional. And I think what I've learned is that, first of all, you learn on the job and you learn through experience. And so the earlier you start developing those skills and experimenting is how you win. You know, that's really when your career can flourish, actually just as soon as you're ready. Like, for example, you see a number of, number of in this case, but pop stars, and, you know, they're young as anything, right? No one's saying to Justin Bieber or other performers, you're a bit too young. You know, no one's ever said that they've gone, actually what they've done is they've really put themselves out there and go, I've got a skill. Um, it's something I really enjoy and this is what I like to do. And someone else has acknowledged their their talent or their gift and gone, I'd really love to give you a stage to amplify your impact so that other people can hear that. And I think that's something that I definitely wish I resigned from earlier. Also knowing that there is no one fixed path. Creativity allows you to just virtually explore anything in any region, you know, what someone's considered as a professional is really up to you. And, you know, anyone that's wanting to question that, unfortunately, you've just got to, you've got to let that go. I, okay. I think. Well, no, the big questions. It's could tough be a healthy questions. disagreement. I'm open to that. <laughs> well, I think, I think I don't regret anything. Like I wouldn't do anything differently because everything, even all the bad things that have happened in, well, quote unquote bad things. Like it all to me is part of the path that has gotten me to where I am. And it's a path that I'm continuing on. I don't think that I've wasted my time with anything really. Like even even when I was younger doing like cafe work, like I feel like I I got some good social skills from doing that. Everything was definitely important. But I think maybe what I would love to like tell myself is just to like live in the moment a bit more and to enjoy to to try and enjoy everything as much as possible. And like when you're studying, like it's such a privilege to be able to study and to be surrounded by music and to be able to, like if you're working as a musician, that's that's awesome. To be able to do that, there's so many people that wouldn't be able to do that. So I guess just relishing more like in the moment and and just trying to be, that sounds so cheesy, but like just trying to be grateful for like what you have, you know, because when you're able to take a step back and be like, wow, what, what I have is so amazing. I feel like that's when you actually really start to enjoy it rather than constantly striving for what you don't have. Um, so that would be what I would say. <laughs> that's, I think that the, that's some good polarity. I actually love a little bit of disagreement. I feel like they're rare on this podcast. But just being able to really, I think between the two, understand those quite early. I think something that I also didn't realise was like just because someone – in the industry that you want to work in doesn't necessarily look like you or act like you. It doesn't, shouldn't stop you from wanting to enter that. When I was talking to Cardi, I think the reason she, I mean, I obviously think you're sensational as well, but she was particularly like emphasizing it was I didn't realize that um, 
in the industry that being a female composer is somewhat rare. And so that just, you know, is even more important to kind of say, you know, if you've got a passion, you know, you should really go for it. Same with law, same in so many other professions. Like if this is the thing that you want to do, don't let that really stop you. And I think that is changing in so many different fields. I think I actually am very grateful to be sort of going through my career now where I think a lot of people above have, have tried to really work on that. But it's definitely something when I was growing up definitely stuck with me a lot more in terms of I'm going to choose something based on where I can see other people already like me as opposed to being, you know, if it's not them, then you've got to be that person and you've just got to carve out your own path because otherwise it will just be a reinforced yeah. barrier. De- yeah, definitely. I think in that respect, when I was younger, I like I would say that I had a flair for production and it's only been in the last couple of years, particularly the last six months that I've kind of started to take that a bit more seriously again. And I think that a lot of the reason why I discredited myself, even though I don't know why, because in all of those particular subjects at uni, I always did really well. But I think because like I'm not necessarily like good with technical names and all of the the industry is very dominated, the producing industry is very dominated by white men. It felt like, I don't know, I just always was like, oh, I'm not ready for that. I'm not, I'm not good enough for that. But actually... I think I should have given myself a little bit more credit and jumped into stuff a bit more. And and it's if you don't know something, um, like the technical name for it, it doesn't necessarily mean that like you're like bad at that or you don't understand. Like a lot of the time, I, I ask questions all the time now. I have no fear of um, – I'm very confident with what I do. Like if I don't understand something, I'll just ask. Like there's no fear in not knowing something and especially in music because we all come from so many different – like worlds. And with me coming from a classical world, there are so many things that I would know that the producer wouldn't know. So it's really nice to like, to think about that. And you just, if you think about that, you've got like a little, you've got a little basket of knowledge, you know, and like everybody's got their own little baskets and like, yeah, there might be some overlaps, but there are so many things that they don't have in their basket. So that was a really weird analogy, but. No, I love it. I've recently encountered the same, which is just this concept of, you know, your job isn't to be the master of all trades. Like, you know. Yes. Just being, I shouldn't even say just, but having the skill to play an instrument or to, for example, in the same way in the corporate space, you'll specialize in a particular area of something in and of itself is so outstanding that if you aren't the expert or really know what you're doing and need to ask questions about something else, that's a part of learning and, and the journey. And that's why you work with other people because they do know more than you. And so you get the benefit of working with a really strong team so that the outcome of the project is you've got people that really are passionate about what they do. They know what to look out for and the end product is super polished. Yeah, definitely. I like that. I like that too. And I think on that, it means that you've got like, I actually often get this when I deal with new starters that come into work. This is important to like that diversity perspective. If you're asking the question again, you're actually enabling that person to rethink, hey, maybe I've always just kind of done it like this. And actually the way you're asking me, that's actually important for me to realize like maybe I also need to challenge that. And so not being afraid to ask either, not to question that person's integrity, but to help them grow as an individual. And I think sometimes that's a little bit lost because we don't want to sound like, oh, I don't know. You're actually better off 
I feel like then people who are engaging with that healthy curiosity, those are the kind of people you want to work with anyway. Definitely. Um, so you don't lo- you don't lose anything by asking, though it feels understandably scary because it's outside of the area that you're comfortable in. But that's where I feel like you get a lot of richness because then when you draw from that experience and you bring in, to your point, Emma, something from classical that maybe the person hadn't considered or something from, from you know, cutting out, example, like a dancer's perspective for something that you're doing when you're writing about music, like all of those things make a richness to it that I feel like without the questioning and, and the healthy conversation wouldn't have happened as well. Um, that's it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, so, so wrapping up, I just think, you know, we've covered so much in terms of the music industry. We've really gone through the foundational elements of the differences between composers, arrangers, producers, performers, and anything in between. We've really highlighted the importance of understanding not just your technical capability, but the wider breadth of skill that you really need if you want to break into any industry. And for our example here, it was largely music both the technical capability around sound engineering, but also those soft skills of actually being able to approach something in a way that, you know, if it's difficult, you need that tenacity to keep going, which I think was a really important conversation. We did a little bit about the day in the life of and and how that really looks different, but similar. So the importance of checklisting, the importance of structuring your day to give yourself the creative space that you need to be able to complete those projects without having to worry about the ins and outs of, you know, when when that thing's going to happen. We talked about the importance of building your signature style on a piece and though that's ever-evolving, that they can be quite distinct and, and make people really want to listen to your music. So spending the time cultivating that and and learning from and absorbing the world around you is really important in that regard. The absolute integral like capability to know your rights, to know how to protect your work and some simple steps that we'll definitely add into the show notes, particularly for creatives that are looking to understand how can I better structure my communication so that I'm coming across it and respected when I'm going about freelance work. The importance of dreaming big, but also making sure you're grateful and reflective um, and where you've come from. And also, as always, um, breaking free from some, some of the assumptions that we have early in our career. Emma, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic podcast and and I've really learned a lot. Uh, I'm not sure quite if I'm going to pick up an instrument and start playing full time, but I am a little bit closer in terms of understanding more about this world. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for those who are listening, we hope you've learned a little bit too. If this has been helpful, or you have a friend in the industry that you think this will be helpful for, make sure you share it on. And as always, give us that five-star review we know you're dying for. Thank you for joining us again at Creative Corporates. We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and we look forward to you joining us in our conversation next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.